It's intermission time. It's great to get off to the movies. Let's just start with you introducing yourself and what you do in the industry. Uh, my name is Melissa Fitzsimmons, and I am a writer, director, producer. I'm a little bit of all those things. I just finished my second feature. Which we will chat about. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, so you're the co-founder of the Los Angeles Women's Film Collective. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so Leonora Pitts and I, uh, she uh, started the Los Angeles Women's Film Collective. Well, the idea behind it was that any point, if anyone wanted to crew up a film that from top to bottom, they could find everybody within this group. So that's how originally it was started. And it just insanely grew faster than we thought it was going to be. I think there's something like 2000 members now. It's everything from like producers, directors to G&E to craft service people to actors. It's like they're all there. So if, if I wanted to go on tomorrow and be like, hey, I need a full crew, I could theoretically crew my whole entire movie and cast it through this group of amazing, talented women in Los Angeles. That's incredible. So yeah. what does it take to be a part of that group? Is it like a, a fee or how does that no, work? No, and that's another reason why it was started. There was a lot of like women's film groups that you had to become a member and you have to pay these annual fees and um. I wasn't really getting anything from that. I was just like, I didn't feel like I was wasting money, but I also didn't feel like I was being heard or my needs were being met. So Leonora approached me and she said, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to be part of it? And I was like, I'll do anything for Leonora. She's amazing. And working with her and building it up um, was definitely an eye-opening experience of, of just like the amount of women in Los Angeles who want work and can work and have amazing talents. And so... Yeah. That's really sweet. So most of the projects you've been working on, it's filtered through that group. Yeah, I mean, pretty much I want to say like a good 85% of my crew has has come from there. I've, I work with the same kind of people now because I've originally met them through that group. And then I've consistently stayed with them. Okay, so we're going to do some questions to get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> Typically, we'd call this like a rapid fire section, but I never actually make it through rapid fire. It ends up being more um, indulgent. So just to start off, who are some of your favorite filmmakers? So I'm a big fan of um, Kelly Reichardt, uh, Lynn Ramsey, Ben Benders, Werner Herzog. I can keep going, but... <laughs> what typically draws you to your favorite filmmakers? I think they're consistently the, the type of filmmakers I like and the films I like have this kind of overall emotional-based films versus plot-based films. So, and that's something that resonates with me as a filmmaker as well. Probably maybe because I'm not the strongest writer, but I tend to gravitate towards filmmakers who really focus on some sort of theme of that is emotionally resonant with me. So, what movies would you say describe your taste specifically? I mean, if you ask any of my friends, their death and abandonment issues are kind of my thing. Okay, <laughs> but like told very slow and boring. <laughs> so. That's me. That's a great sell. Uh, do you have any movies that come to mind when you think of those themes? Sure. This is going to seem like a weird thing, but my top kind of three-ish favorite films all have to do in some sort of way of like abandonment issues and death and how we grieve, which are um, <laughs> Vem Vender's Paris, Texas and uh, Kieslowski's Blue. 
And um, one of my all-time favorites, E.T. Love it. <laughs> I love when people come on the show and they're wearing something that has to do with the movies they love. I do. I love this movie. E.T. is my favorite movie of all time, which is so weird when I tell that to people because they're like, you? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit pretentious, so I am what I am. I think to know oneself self is important. <laughs> These themes that you're drawn to typically in movies, often movies pertain to our past, our history, our context. Do you feel like that is why you're drawn to those themes or it's just a, a weird niche that you are <laughs> gotten yourself into? Listen, let's just say making movies is just as expensive as the therapy <laughs> that I've had to go through from childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Do you find it therapeutic? A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. I think, I mean, I would find it hard to believe that any filmmaker making anything out there doesn't have some sort of therapeutic value in making their films Mm -hmm. so are you someone who after you watch a film you especially one that's an emotional toll do you like to talk to people about it afterwards no I just like to sit in the movie theater in the dark and cry really yeah I if if the better the film is, is like the more I'm just sitting there crying and I have to wait till everyone leaves and I have to sit there and like cry. I love to leave a movie completely emotionally wrecked and it will put me in a bad mood for like three days because I'm still trying to process all the emotions that I've felt during the movie. Those are the best type of movies. Yeah, I, I resonate with yeah. that deeply. Can you think of the last time you were in a theater that you felt that way? Yeah, uh, yeah actually, uh, when... We were allowed to go back to movies after the pandemic. The Arrow Theater did a special screening in 70 millimeter of E.T. (laughs) And I thought, what a great way to be able to go back into the movies. And this would be the only movie that would ever get me to drive to the West Side. And it was in 70 millimeter. And so the print was like super fucked up and it was amazing. And I sat like in a theater with probably only about like 20 other people. And then it, but it was, it was genuinely like being transported back to my childhood and that feeling of like, just like feeling lonely as a child and needing a best friend and like having no one listen to you. I was like, suddenly there I was again, like crying my eyes out in the theater. And I was the last one to leave. I was like, but I think a lot of that, those emotions all had something to do with the fact of the pandemic and, Mm -hmm. and being a filmmaker and somebody who was like, I used to go to the movies like every day Mm -hmm. and then I didn't get to do that for over a year and so it was like this beautiful experience of all over again it felt like going to the movies again for the first time and seeing the movie that I the first movie I remember as a kid seeing Mm -hmm. so it was like it was a, a very overwhelming experience for me so I also, and then I had to drive to the west side. So. Yes, that's also a problem. <laughs> that's an emotional You're crying toll. on the drive there. <laughs> but um, I love when in just day-to-day life, there's little moments that feel very theatrical. And that experience of you seeing E.T. is almost like the closing of a chapter of the pandemic. It's like a movie in itself. Yeah. I love those moments where I just feel like I'm living in a movie right now and this was act one. And I can look back and feel like this was a, a set story and I'm on to the next story. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. No. I would love if we both described it. <laughs> I might. So it's been a long day. What makes a work a masterpiece? And do you think that word is overused? Yeah, I do think the word's overused. I think the word genius is overused as well. Auteur is a word I've 
really fucking hate more than anything. I'm for sure describing you as notor in the bio. Of this oh man, episode. please don't do that. That is going to make me so embarrassed. And every single one of my friends will completely mock me. And I, they, and I will deserve it. I can't wait. I, I don't really know what describes a masterpiece. I kind of feel like any movie that I go and see and I have some sort of uh, emotional engagement to it, it's, I feel that it's, it's like to me that that it's worked for me. And like that, you know, I guess if it ticks all the boxes, like the directing is amazing and the story is amazing and the acting is amazing and the cinematography and the music, if it all just aligns perfectly with who I am and where I am that day, then I guess that would be considered a masterpiece. I don't, I don't fucking know. You're yeah. asking the wrong person. It's all perspective. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like art. It's art. Subject- Relative. It's subjective. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you have any vivid memories of going to the drive-in movies and any that stand out to you? Oh, Yeah. Did you Google me? This was from <laughs> the crew. That yeah. was not a me question. Okay. <laughs> So I grew up in my backyard basically was a drive-in movie theater. And so we were able to just kind of tune in to the little AM radio and that's a dream kind of get it. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you about my dream. So I grew up in Moab, Utah in the eighties when it was not what it is today, which is just like, you know, the Vegas of Utah and it's really depressing me, but that was what we did. Like the whole town and the whole community, you just went to the movies. That was all there was. There was a movie theater and I think it had maybe about 75 seats in it. And then right next to it was the drive-in and between them is where I lived. And so, um, briefly lived. So it was like, they were my babysitters. Mm. The movies were my babysitters because I grew up in a single parent home. And so, um, Every kind of drive-in moment, and I can relate back to that feeling of like turning on the AM radio with a little bucket of popcorn that we had made and and just watching with whatever, half the time not even understanding what was going on because I was such a child. But it's it was my favorite thing to do. And I when we moved from there, my dream that I wanted more than anything was to buy that drive-in movie theater and um, be able to make it free for anyone who wanted to see movies there. And I was completely heartbroken when I went back in like my early 20s only to discover that they had torn it down for condos. Mm. And so it put me on this mission of like, where are all the remaining drive-in movie theaters? And I really want to go visit them and like see, like be have that, which was like to bring it back to 2020 was like, that's, was such a great experience when drive-in movie theaters were suddenly like popular again. Mm-hmm. I brought my kids to a drive-in movie. It was amazing. It was great. We sat in the back, ate in and out burgers and they were like, what, this is kind of weird. And I was like, you'll love it. Just, <laughs> just, just pretend. But, uh, you know, uh, sadly I, I knew that after it was over with that people would forget about them again. But those are, I have like such fond memories of drive-in movie theaters. 
it makes me think so you're a photographer as well and i'm spacing mm-hmm. on this photographer's name you probably know him he's well, no- i probably won't but go ahead Re- oh really oh, okay <laughs> well he's the he's known for kind of photographing the off the highways all over the america very like kitschy motels and like the giant statues do you know what i'm talking about so many of those really? photographers Fuck, I'm, i don't know the name well regardless i think it would be really cool for you to do a series of photography of drive-in theaters is that something you would do I would, yeah. If somebody wants to pay me, that's a lot of gas money. That's but I also, true. Like, I, it has been done before. So, oh, wait. Hold on. We have this on video. She just said she was going to pay me <laughs> to do that. So. Wait. It's been done before. That's a serious. Yeah. There's, there's That bums me out. Everything's been done before. That's okay. I mean, every movie's been done before. So yeah. it's just, you just have to make it yourself. Mm-hmm. Make it yours. What does it take to get you to go to the movie theater now? A good movie. (laughs) I find it hard to find movies that I want to see in the movie theater. I really do. It's a bit frustrating because I love the movies and I'm like all those Stubbs members and Lemley member and all that. I, I, I love going to the movies. I am the person who like I have to be there for the trailers. I have to be there, you know till the end credit rolls by and um, I'm often I could do like back-to-back movies no problem at all mm-hmm. um, but there's not a lot to be honest that there's not a lot of variety like uh, I can go to the movie and I guarantee you the same movie is going to be on five screens and so it that doesn't appeal to me as much mm-hmm. um, I'll see anything I really will but like I want to discover something new and it doesn't feel like there's anything new at like the more kind of commercial movie theaters I'll seek out the smaller art house ones or the smaller international theaters but even those are getting harder and harder Mm -hmm. it doesn't take me doesn't take much to get me there I just have to be able to like go oh what's that Mm -hmm. I want to see that but generally like the movies that are there now they're like there's like 500 times and I just feel like oh well I don't know it's not really appealing to me I don't know the killer is released simultaneously in theater and on Netflix yes is that a type of movie that you would go out of your way to see in theater you don't mind and you'll watch it on Netflix I will go see a David Fincher movie in the theater because I think that he warrants that Mm -hmm. 100% I'm actually gonna see it in the theater how do you feel about movie captions like at home, like on, it's so like weird to me. Uh, teenagers, like I have a, two teenagers and they watch everything with movie captions and then I'll go and I'll watch something and then I'm like, why the fuck is this on? I don't really have an opinion either way because it's one of those things where like I get to make up my own mind if I want them on or not. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. Like mm-hmm. if I don't want them on, I'm going to turn them off. You so, think it detracts from the experience? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're expecting or what the experience is for you I mean I watch movies with subtitles all the time and it doesn't distract from the experience from me mm-hmm. I do and I'm not gonna lie I do put on captions sometimes when I'm like cooking and I'll have my laptop open and like I'll have them on as like just like a backup if I'm missing something but I also like 100% don't care what I'm watching I'm so it doesn't matter if they're on or not. So mm-hmm. I'm just, it's, I constantly have to have movies going on in my house and it's like a background noise. So I'm the exact same way. Yeah. 
What was the first foreign film that captured your interest? So this is a good, this is, I thought about actually this the other day, somebody had asked me, do you remember your first foreign film you ever seen? And um, so I grew up in kind of two small towns. And so I actually didn't really see a foreign film till I was in um, like high school. And I had an English teacher who would wheel out the cart and be like, this is what we're going to watch. And he happened to also be a filmmaker. And so um, he wheeled out Cinema Paradiso. And I remember we had to watch it like in two days. And um, I remember going home that night and just like writing in my journal. uh, Like it was like I had discovered gold, you know, like I have never seen something. It really capped it captured me and it was it that movie is what started my lifelong love affair with foreign film Mm -hmm. so yeah cinema parody so i love still in my top five yeah me too actually it's in my top five have you sought out similar films to cinema parody so are you unopposed to consuming anything foreign despite genre or year of release like do you find yourself typically drawn to similar themes when you're picking foreign films not necessarily maybe subconsciously because I have noticed that pretty much like my the films that I like and the films that I gravitate towards to and the films that are kind of consistently in like my favorites all have like very similar themes and they all weirdly like involve children Mm -hmm. and so but when seeking out like foreign films I'm just like that looks cool. Mm-hmm. I'm going to watch that. Or that looks interesting. Or like if I'm researching stuff, like if I'm right, like I'm writing something new right now and Criterion channels, just like the best thing ever. And what it allows me to do is like to like get the, maybe a same theme, but from a different point of view, mm-hmm. it's an international film. And I, I quite like that. Mm-hmm. What is a movie character that you've had a crush on? I mean, what movie character haven't I had a Like, <laughs> Uh, forever or just like recently um person that comes to mind movie movie character Mm -hmm. oh character i have always had a movie crush on matt dylan and the outsiders Mm -hmm. so yeah that's like that's a good one it's a good one But he was like a bad boy with a heart of gold. Yeah, we love. I love a bad boy. I <laughs> with I, really good hair. You know what's funny is I I had this realization. I don't remember. Maybe like a year ago, that every single time I've watched a movie and there's like a hot bad boy, I always look him up after to look up the actor, and they never age well. The bad oh. boys do not <laughs> age well ever. I think Matt Dillon aged well. I I can't th- I can't picture a current. Uh, photo of him but all all of my searches I'm disappointed (laughs) do you when do you find yourself when you watch movies like you I watch me when I'm watching a movie for the first time I I guess mainly it happens with television I have my phone there and it's already open to IMDB Mm, yeah so I'm like I know that guy how do I know that guy and I'm like constantly like looking and like who's that person that's interesting and I I have my IMDB open and then I have like my notes folders open and I'll make notes of like actors or actresses or cinematographers or like who did the music for that so I end up with these giant lists afterwards and and then I get mad at myself because I'm like wait what was it about I have to go back and now I gotta go back and watch it again so I find myself I do that quite a lot I shouldn't do that I should be paying more attention but mainly with television that's kind of cool are you writing these all in the same like journal or is it different pieces of paper I mean my notes app is just filled with not sometimes Mm. I open it up I'm like I don't even know what 
this is. Mm-hmm. Just like a vague It's memory. just like a name, like Bob. And I'm like, who the fuck is Bob? Uh-huh. So. I do that with TV. Yeah. Movies, I'm more of a deep dive on YouTube after person. Like yeah. it, watching interviews or watching. I see. I don't do that. Maybe I should do that. I don't do, I don't use YouTube as much as I should. I, I'm on YouTube a lot. I should do it, yeah. I think just, I, I really like watching different people break down movies. And then I also oh. watch interviews for the actors, especially if I didn't recognize them prior. And I want to see if I like like their actual personality. Because I, if I don't know them outside of... I always watch uh, interviews because I just want to know, wait, is that an act? Does he have an accent in real life? Yeah. And that's a really good American accent he's doing. But what's he sound like in real life? Mm-hmm. So have you heard me? I've brought this up, I think, on the show before. Have you heard Mia Goth's voice? Yeah, it's like really tiny. It's crazy. She's tiny. It's so funny compared to just the roles that she plays. Yeah. Such a contrast. If I was ever going to do an animation movie of the Littles, I don't know if anyone knows what the Littles are. They're a TV animation show. I would want Mia Goth to be in the Littles. She'd be a great character. Lucy voice. Little. She'd be Lucy Little. Very few people are going to get this reference. I really... And I've just aged myself. The synagogue following, honestly... They've seen it all. I'm sure that there's going to be some comments. The little Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s. This episode is brought to you by The Spirit of the Beehive by Victor Arise. to a screen near you in the year 1973. What is a movie, since you said you are someone who likes to cry during movies, what is a movie that other people have cried from and you finished it and you didn't have a drop in your eye? Oh, wow. I'm very emotional. (laughs) I cried. I cried on a horror movie the other day. That's a... I can't off the top of my mind think of something where everyone else cried and I did it. Like I'm trying I, to think for myself like I, as well. That's a that's gonna now bug me and I'll you're gonna get a text from me in like a month. I thought of it. Um I cry very easily. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Tell me if it comes up in your head uh, later in the I will. Okay. I've already made a mental note <laughs> just keep thinking. What is more important, a director's debut or their sophomoric effort so i wrote some down here we have virgin suicides was followed by lost in translation heart eight was followed by boogie nights bottle rocket was followed by rushmore do you feel like the intro of your film intro into the world is the end all be all or which is more important to you well i think the sophomore effort is more difficult for filmmakers uh i think because well i don't know i can't speak for everybody else i can only speak for myself but I'm going to speak for every filmmaker. Um, I There's this kind of extra pressure. Like the first one's done. Oh, I did it. Thank God. I don't think everyone hates it. M- maybe a few people liked it. And I don't think everyone hates me. But then on the second one, it's like, well, I have to, I have to do better. I have to now get people to really watch it or really notice me. And I have to take a step up. And I think the first one is like this sort of like, I don't want to say experimental film, but like, it's like, I'm going to get this out here. I'm going to do it. 
and I'm going to hope somebody likes it and I'm going to hope somebody likes me enough to maybe give me money to do another one. But that second one is like, this will be the one that will propel me a little bit further. And so like, I better make the right choice of what that's going to be and what that says about me as a filmmaker. And like, I've made the mistakes on the first one, but I can't make those same mistakes on the second one. And so I think there's this pressure that we put on ourselves for that second film Mm -hmm. to like not fuck it up because you know I don't know there's like these percentages and they say I don't know who they are it's like you know you know 80% of females are like one and done and so they're for me it became like this like huge obsession not to be that 80% Mm -hmm. and then it put an insane amount of pressure on me to like pick the right thing Mm -hmm. when really I just wanted to do something for me Mm -hmm. but it comes about like doing something that for everyone else so that they'll like you Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense no it makes complete sense so you know I think the second one's harder for a filmmaker I would I would argue the same it's also I'm thinking of in terms of musicians with their albums too it's like you're introducing yourself to the world and then can you uphold that standard you've set or bring it up a notch yeah I mean and like think about it like sequels are always better mm-hmm. than the original than the first one for the I think that's controversial. I will. <laughs> I also like pepperoni, pineapple and ham and jalapeno on my pizza all at once with ranch dressing. She so. does it all. Wait, I'm sorry, but you're going to try to tell me that Empire is not superior to Star Wars. <laughs> I think that it's I think that that the statement just in general like the Shrek 2 is better than Shrek 1. Wait, I haven't seen Shrek 2 in so long. Well, see, come talk to me after. Yeah, I'll get back to you. We'll find out. I'm trying to think of... I think that I just the first movie typically holds more space in my memory. I think probably because it was such a game changer for animation yeah. at the time. Yeah. It was something new and fun and different than like the typical... like. Disney musicals that we were growing yeah. up with. I love that you brought up Shrek. <laughs> I, don't, I love animation. <laughs> I really do love animation. So in the vein of directorial debuts, we have a list here of some examples of directorial debuts. Orton Wells, Citizen Kane, David Lynch's Eraserhead. Uh, I mean, I could go on. The movie that we had you choose, the director, it was his directorial debut. Um, you chose Spirit of the Beehive. And I wanted you to share kind of why that movie was a standout for you and why you wanted to focus on that one yeah so and also I watched it yesterday so I'm excited to talk about okay it. great because I I love I've been like screaming for about a month for everyone to watch this so I hadn't seen it till about a month ago and I first of all I was very disappointed in myself having not seen it because it's a movie like com- it's very up now it's that we've talked it's very, very up much your me yes yeah. it's very much me and I had watched it because uh, you know I'm working on something that has to do with like childhood and and in trauma and childhood and so I've been watching all of these films and then uh, somebody had said no no one said what happened was um I had read or saw some sort of interview with Guillermo del Toro and he was talking about casting kids Mm -hmm. and he said that uh, everyone knows Frankenstein's his favorite movie and then he had said that uh Spirit of the Beehive was one of his favorite movies and the reason one of the reasons one of the reasons why was the the little girl in it and he said that she basically set the bar for every child he's ever cast if if they don't meet what she had then he doesn't cast them 
Hmm. And I was like, what movie is he talking about? And so uh, I watched it and I sat and cried for a very long time afterwards. <laughs> and then I immediately watched it again. Hmm. And so it, I don't know if anyone's seen it. If you haven't, you completely should. It's like, I mean, I guess if we're talking about masterpieces, huh? It's considered one of Spain's masterpieces. It, it just, I don't even know how to describe it. It's its so emotional and cinematic for me. And it was so um, like childhood innocence and fantasy. And for people who haven't seen it, it basically takes place like right at the beginning of Franco's regime. And so right after Spanish Civil War, much people can like have a very much more like um, intellectual way of describing this movie and themes and stuff like that. But I took away from it something um, totally different. Again, you have this amazing actress. I don't, I don't, I think that was her first thing. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I looked her up after cause I was curious she what she was looks like, like six or something in the film. Yeah. I've, I want to hear your thoughts first, but yeah. Um, and it, to me, was just this film told from her point of view, which is something I really love when it's told from a child's point of view. And it was, everything was so innocent for her. And, and it was so, seeing the world through her point of view and, and not quite understanding still what the world is. And it was very, everything was so fascinating for her. And this just really childlike, innocent, and like a little bit of fantasy in there and so again it's I can't I you know I'm I just I'm still speechless over the film a little mm -hmm. not articulating myself very well but it's just a really beautiful film about childhood and it's got very very minimal dialogue in it which I actually really like too mm -hmm. someone it's a very quiet movie yeah someone who's not a very good writer who doesn't write a lot <laughs> of dialogue really can appreciate it but there's a way of how the film was shot that really really affected me as well with the way that I'm trying to remember the DP's name was Luis Cordardo Cordardo or something like that I don't think I wrote it oh man I'm sorry if you're listening to this Luis <laughs> um he the way the camera moves is so like with such purpose and and the intention and and like there's a reason why it's moving with this little girl and there's a reason when it pulls away from the little girl and like it's it's just like this so fluid and intimate to me and the coloring and the landscape and these big wide shots like of this world just like engulfing this child and oh, oh man I'm just I like it so much speaking but, of the coloring something I noticed I don't know if you caught this but the window panes the beehive yeah, yeah. the father just was like it's this film where these kids are completely like their parents don't even acknowledge them. And so they get to, they're just these kids in a world navigating it themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's really, then there's some really beautiful lines in the film when Anna and her older sister are in bed after watching Frankenstein <laughs> and she's so fascinated by the monster. And then the older sister's like, I just kind of want to go to bed. And she's talking and she asks if he's real and, did what happened to the little girl? Did she die? And the sister says, it's the movies. Everything is fake. And this kind of look on Anna's face, uh, it was almost like a look of disappointment. Like she wanted it to be real so bad, even though it made her scared. Mm -hmm. 
And I just remember having those feelings as a child. Like I wanted the movies to be so real, even if they scared me. Mm-hmm. And so I resonated a lot. Um, having a, I have a big sister and just like those moments in yeah. the bedroom, like laying in bed, whispering about something you just saw. I wrote down a lot of the movie. It feels like showing vulnerability and like a child's wonder yeah. and like the expression like you're wide-eyed and like this girl has like the most beautiful big brown eyes right. and she's like the literal depiction of like a wide-eyed girl mm-hmm. consuming the world and I loved that it showed the girls in contrast to the parents like they're living in completely different worlds but that's how you feel as a kid you're in a completely different world you're following your own rules you're I so this there was like the scene where the sister plays dead to yeah. be funny. And well, here's the thing that I took away from the sister. I thought she was quite cruel. Yes, exactly. She's she's a bit cruel to her. And she's choking her cat. Yeah. I, but I guess what I got from that is like the sister or even just like as a kid, you're learning, like testing the waters yeah. and pushing and pulling of like, what are the rules of the world? And yeah. and what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And I, I thought like both of them are kind of at that age where you're coming to conclusions, like what's fantasy, what's reality, what's cruel and what's acceptable. Yeah. And the beauty of like uh, Anna, Anna is that she's still in the wonderment stage mm-hmm. and everything is so pure for her. And mm-hmm. like her, like the scene where she's with the, the man in the barn, the deserter. And it's like, she doesn't know. Is he real? Is he the spirit? Is he, who is he? Is he good or is he bad? But it didn't, like, she still, like, has these interactions with him. And they don't talk. They don't talk at all. I think the only time they talk is when she offers him an apple. And, like, that's it. Mm -hmm. But it's just, like, she's just so kind. And I think that's why I love movies like that. I love like if I break down the movies that I really like, love, you know, E.T., Child, Ratcatcher, Child, you know, Kess, Child, Ponette, Child, like, you know, this movie, Child, like it's all from these point of views of these very vulnerable kids who are living very big emotional moments mm-hmm. and not understanding what those emotional moments are and they're just trying to navigate and process them. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, yeah, it's probably, again, subconsciously me and my own childhood, why those things I gravitate towards. Overall, an incredible movie. I'm really glad you recommended it because uh, then I watched had it. Had you seen it before? No, I watched it for this episode. Oh, so see? I watched it yesterday for One the first time. One more person I've yeah, convinced I, to watch it. I was it. very, very happy. And we're introducing this segment to the show, like having a guest kind of bring one movie to focus on. And I'm yeah. actually pretty excited because it's going to kind of force me to like watch very very specific movies yeah so i'm excited i loved it i'll i'm gonna watch it again even (laughs) (laughs) why not why not yeah so i guess we i thought it was also cool because so this was his directorial debut Mm -hmm. and you had your directorial debut what was it 2019 yeah 2019 so do you want to share a little bit about your film that came out yeah um so i made him well everyone told me so here's the backstory so as a female everyone was like you have to do all these things first and I just felt like they kept moving the goalposts like I was like yo you got to do these programs I did the programs everyone you got to do these labs I did the labs you gotta do you have to be a writer and a director so I was like oh boy okay fine I'll do that 
And uh, I'm a, I'm a self-taught filmmaker. I didn't go to school for it. So everything's always been like trial and error and like you made a mistake, I'll learn from it and fix it on the next one. And I kept butting up against people going, well, we, I really like you. You're, you're interesting and I really want to work with you, but you haven't done a feature, mm-hmm. um, which was odd to me because I was like, well, I've done, I have done a feature. I've done documentary feature mm-hmm. and I, and, um, but it didn't matter to them. It was like my history of like being a photographer for 15 something years made no impression on them. And then directing like a slew of documentary shorts and like co-directing documentary features is like all that meant nothing. Mm. And then it was like, I didn't get into narrative filmmaking till I was 40. So I got into it quite late Mm -hmm. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't really know what I'm doing. So I was like, I'll use the opportunity to make a bunch of short films as like my film school. And so I made back to back like seven short films back to back one year. I made like two a year. So, um, and then still everyone was like, well, you don't, I don't, you haven't done a feature. And I was like, I'm trying to <laughs> trust me. I'm trying to, but everyone keeps moving these goalposts. And so I finally was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And then that won't be an excuse for anyone. So at that point, if people still won't work with me, then I just know I'm a shit director. So I got accepted into this talent lab in Reykjavik in Iceland. And while I was there, i I had been there before, but I went back for this talent lab and I just fell in love with it. Like the lighting is like so beautiful and the people are so kind and like really interesting. And I just made my mind up. It was 28 October, 2018. And I I said, I'm going to make a movie in Iceland. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be about, but I'm going to make it. I don't know how, but I'm going to make a movie in Iceland sometime this year. And so um, I got back and, that was October, and then, like, I thought, how, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I did another short in between that time, and then February, March came, and then I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this film in Iceland, and it's going to be about the end of the world. Because if there was anywhere I wanted to be stranded at the end of the world, it's going to be Iceland. And that's kind of like the seed that planted it. And then, so I said, well, uh, I'm going to make it micro budget because I don't have any money. Uh, I never really crowdfunded, but I said, whatever I get for crowdfunding is just what I'm going to make it for. And I started to kind of like reach out to friends that I've always worked with. I've known for years, uh, my DP Todd Hickey. I'd known him since I was 18. We were like two little skater punks who met as PAs on a Spike Jones music video. And, and uh, he, we'd done documentary stuff together and, uh, I was like, Hey, you want to go to Iceland? And he was like, heck yeah. And I was like, cool. Do you want to make a feature? And he was like, wait, what? And I think the people I approached were all at the same stage as me. Like we have to move forward or we're going to end up stuck here. And so I think everyone was willing to take that risk and jump with me for very, very little pay because they too needed to prove something to themselves, but also like to to move forward just like to have movement is so important in filmmaking Mm -hmm. and so I was like let's do it also everyone was like we get to go to Iceland (laughs) so um so uh I did a crowdfunding and I raised like 20 grand and I was like well I guess I'll just do this we did a crowdfunding and I didn't have a script um I didn't even know what the movie was going to be and that was in May and then I thought okay well 
I better write something now. <laughs> I know what I want to do. I have a big fear of writing. And so did that light a fire under your ass? Um, no, not really. <laughs> it, what it did is it made me go, oh, I better go s- figure out like who's going to act in it, mm. you know, and um, Hugo de Sousa, who had been in a, f- a mutual friends film. Um, I liked what he had did in that film. And there was something very interesting about his face. I know what kind of filmmaker I am. I know I'm going to do like some art house thing that's going to have really long takes. That is a slow burn. That's all like really slow. And people are going to be like so bored by it. But I thought if I'm only going to do one, at least I'm going to be able to do something that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be like about processing grief. I, that's what I was, um, do. Mm -hmm. I do stuff about death. I do stuff about feeling abandoned. And that's what this film was about like and everyone's like but it's about the end of the world right and I was like no it is about <laughs> processing grief and feeling abandoned and it just happens to be the end of the world mm-hmm. but no one cares because everyone's known about it for a really long time so they're like well finally it's happening yay mm-hmm. and so they don't care mm-hmm. so it was like such a minuscule like plot I don't even there's no plot in my <laughs> movies just a tiny backstory. I just needed there to be like a ticking clock. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So uh, I asked, you know, I reached out to Hugo and I said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And he was like, yeah. I kind of loosely pitched him a vague idea. And he was like, cool, can I see a script? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just working on it. And that was like August. So and funny. so... We uh, got some additional funding from two other people, and that brought my budget to $35,000. You're rich. I know. I was like, well, that's it. We're making a movie. And there was four people on my crew, and I said, we're going to go to Iceland. And then Hugo was like, well, can I get a script? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't worry. And then meanwhile, I was like, well. I would be so stressed out. Uh, I was like, I know what I want. So I just have to figure out how to express that to everybody. But apparently they need words on pages. (laughs) And so in September came and I was like, we got to make a date. We just have to shoot this and we can't do it past October because November and December, January, February are too cold. And I want to do this in before the year is over. And so this was 2019. And so October seemed like the best date because it had been one year since I had been in Iceland and said, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a movie. Yeah. So um, I said, we're going to shoot it. We're going to shoot it in the first week of October. And it was the first like week of September. And Hugo was like, well, can I get a script? <laughs> and I was like, well, it's a skeleton of a script. And I quickly like took a week and I wrote like 45 pages of something. And I sent it to him and I was like, let's just talk about what your character is and who your character is and Hugo was like very generous and he had brought a lot of ideas to the table and really asked a lot of important questions that helped him figure out what it was going to be because he knew it was going to be a very quiet film and he knew that it was going to be um everything had to be on his face which Mm -hmm. was one of the reasons why I approached him because he was very good like you can Hugo's like one of those people like what he's saying could be like, I'm having a great time. But his face is telling you the truth, which is I'm having a miserable time. It's my favorite type of people. Yeah. I have a hard time. Like this face of mine gives away my inner uh, 
feelings yeah. very easily. Yeah. So a lot of people are always like, yeah, you need to work on a neutral face. And so, so yeah. So then sept end of September came and like I, we got on a plane and we went to Iceland with like four people. And there was just like a lot of my biggest thing that I kept telling myself over and over again. And I still do this on any project is it's not really about the film it's about the process of making the film and the experience. And if I'm having a good time and if everyone else is having a good experience, then I've succeeded as a filmmaker. And and everyone knows it's going to be hard and there's going to be hard days. But if we can get through the hard days and still laugh about it in hindsight, like, ha, that was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the overall experience is a good one in making it, then then it's it's a success to me. And then that makes the film a success because I know that everyone put everything into it. Mm-hmm. So that film to me was very successful because I have been told, unless they were all lying, that everyone had a really good time making it. And I think that showed up in the film that they cared about the film. So yeah, we finished it and then we came home from Iceland and then the holidays came and then the pandemic hit. Love that timing. And so, yeah, it's a weird feeling to finally, like, make your first film and then the world shuts down and you've made a film about the world shutting down and people just really needing human connections and people are going to die. And then that's what's happening in the world. And, and then you go, oh, shit. Did I predict the future? It's another one of those tie-ins that I brought up earlier where, like, your life feels cinematic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely felt very traumatic. Yeah. I, I think it really shaped the way we edited the film. Mm. A lot of people who saw it were like, oh, I thought it was going to be really depressing. You told me you wanted to make a depressing movie where everyone was going to cry at the end. And I was like, and, but everyone kind of said it's a very hopeful film. And I think like that was like something that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting a lot of people to like really reach out and go, your film made me happy. And like, it really was beautiful. And and, like, it gave me, it was very hopeful. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Everyone dies at the end. You know that, right? And so it was a good experience. I learned a lot. And it also like made me realize like, I'm a micro budget filmmaker. I like, I would love people to give me some more money and like take a risk on me and take a chance with me and like want to work with me and like, you know, invest in me, not -hmm. necessarily a film because no one makes money making movies these days. And so it's like, but I'm not holding out for that. Like I don't have these grand illusions. So my goal has always been like, well, whatever I can get and whoever wants to work with me and whoever wants to have a good experience, let's Mm -hmm. go make a movie. Mm -hmm. And then, and that's okay. It took a while to get to that place to be like, Oh wait, this isn't going to happen for me the way I want it to happen for me. So I'm going to be happy with what does happen. Mm -hmm. I probably sound like a little bit of a downer. Oh man. I don't think, I don't think so. I think also like we've had a few people on the show who really resonate with the quiet space like the calmness in between movies and the notion of loving crying at the movies also I do think a lot of people go to the movies to like not only feel something but like have that enormous heartbreak or that heart wrench or that 
like triggering feeling, but on purpose. I yeah. think we all we all want to feel something. So yeah, growing up, I didn't. Um, I'm I wasn't an emotional person. My my family's not very emotional. My mother wasn't a very emotional person, and and I didn't show a lot of emotion, and and that made it very difficult when I got like into my thirties, and and even now I I have trouble like showing emotion in front of people and I get really embarrassed by it and I'll be like oh I'm gross (laughs) and I try to make jokes and my good friends know how hard it is for me Mm -hmm. Uh, which is weird because I literally cry at everything and Mm -hmm. I'm a very emotional person but I don't do it public like I don't like it in front of people and it took me a very long time to be okay with being vulnerable because filmmaking is a very vulnerable thing Mm -hmm. and I, I think like probably the reason why the movies I'm attracted to allow me to be vulnerable and and cry and use that as an excuse Mm -hmm. like I'm crying because of the movie Mm -hmm. it's it's more than that Mm -hmm. probably for me I'm I'm a weirdo (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I want to oh but you you said you're working on a second feature film yeah do you want to briefly touch on that sure I (laughs) It's so funny because like my Is first there a script. Yeah, I did. write. I, it's a 72 page script, by the she way. She did it. I did it. Well, uh-huh. <laughs> I my first movie got like the pandemic hit. And then then and then my second one, literally the strikes <laughs> happened. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, man? This what's happening with my life? But I did get uh, it's a micro budget. And so <laughs> SAG, we're like, yeah, we don't really care about you. <laughs> please care mm-hmm. uh so like i was able to like convince like the one the few sag people like no no it's okay look look this is this they said right here it mm-hmm. says even on the website you can be in my movie because i'm not paying you that much <laughs> <laughs> they don't care about my budget so yeah i i wanted to do something it had been it's been so long since i had in 2019 and and i just again it was that thing that I talked about earlier where like the pressure I was putting on myself kept thwarting me to like make a decision about what I wanted to do next. And so then the months would go by and I'd be like, I like, I have three scripts that I really, really want to do. Like they're ready to go, but they are not micro budget movies, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to move them forward. Cause you know, like the traditional path is like you make your first movie it goes through the festivals people like you might get a few meetings and you might meet the one person that like moves you to the next block I didn't get any of that Mm -hmm. because the festivals pretty much were all virtual and even though the film did really really well at festivals I didn't have an audience interaction and I didn't have like a community interaction Mm -hmm. because of it being 2020 and 2021 and and so I almost felt like I was gonna like then my second film was going to be my first film. So I put an insane amount, like it has to be perfect. It has to exactly say who I am as a filmmaker, which is weird because I'm still an evolving filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I like so many different types of films and so many types of genres. And I want to do horror and I want to do like this comedy and I want to do like these kind of more complex emotional pieces, you know, but what's that second one going to be? What's the second one going to be? And then the next thing you know, is like three years have gone by and I'm like, I haven't done anything, Mm -hmm. nothing. And like, I was just getting so anxious about it. 
that I said, I have to give myself a break and I just want to have some fun. I just, I have such talented friends who also were like, I just want to have fun. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, if I can find a little bit of money, does anyone like, I'll go that same route, like four people and two actors and like, let's do, but I wanted to do something lighter because I did want people to say like, hey, she's not completely like this girl's depressed listens to like you know nothing but the smiths and whatever i don't know i was gonna say depeche mode but i hate depeche mode. <laughs> so, whatever depressing music is and then and so i was like yeah let's have fun and so i was like what's it gonna be and then i thought it came all about because I was talking to adriana serrata who's my dp and co-producer and we we were, we were just having such a bad week with like film related stuff and projects had fallen through and jobs weren't happening and the strike was going on. And, and we said, you have to be so delusional to be a filmmaker, like you, or to even work in the film business because as a, either an actor or a director or a writer, whatever in the film business, you are constantly being told no. Mm -hmm. And, and yet we still get every morning up every morning like oh, I love making movies. I want to make a movie. And then like the end of the day, you know, I'm like, what the fuck? Why am I doing this? This is so dumb. Nobody cares about what I have to say or wants to watch anything. You, you know, I get like my sales reports from like my first film and it's like zero. And you're like, oh, why? Why do I want to keep putting myself through this over and over and over and over again? Because we're delusional. And so that's what I wanted to do. That's what I said. I said, I'll make a movie about how fucking delusional we are to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. So that's what the movie's about. Two people who, for better or worse, are delusional <laughs> that they can come to Los Angeles and make it as actors, despite having no talent and never done it before. And so that's the, the two strangers meet and they go on a road trip across America and they learn along the way who they are. But also they just don't learn at all from any of their mistakes because, you know, who does learn from their mistakes in their 20s? No, and that's the whole point of your 20s. Mm -hmm. Like you make mistakes and you think you're great. And then, you know, and honestly, like I would tell everyone like, they will probably succeed because they are delusional. Mm -hmm. So those are the people that succeed. So I, I completely agree. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I love the premise of this too. It's such a um, turning on its head, like what I would assume you would have done for your <laughs> it second. A hundred percent. Like everyone's like, you're doing a, com a comedy. I'm like, well, not really because it's still like, you know, people who are like, depressed and like can't figure out their lives and they like feel like they're not very good people and blah 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 okay well this actually kind of bleeds well into my next little segment I wanted to do with you that is going over different genres of movies and what director you would like to see do that genre that doesn't typically do this genre so it's okay. kind of perfect yeah I give some of my own answers in here but I obviously want to hear yours first so uh, when I say horror, what director would you like to see a horror that doesn't typically do horror? That's a good one. I would like to see... 
I have like obscure director names in my head that everyone's going to go who. So I'm going to try and make it a little bit more commercial. So I think you can do both. I, I truly think the audience of this podcast has some deep cuts. Oh, cool. But here's uh, now it's not going to seem like it would be a stretch, but in terms of horror, like horror is such like a massive like genre and subgenres and all that. But I actually would like to see David Fincher do a horror horror, mm-hmm. like a full on like. You know, but I want to see him do a ghost story. Okay. Like a good ghost. Like, yeah. when's the last good ghost story you saw? I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Like, I'm like, I want a good ghost Cute. story. Like, I can't even. Yeah. See, can't. The Others was the only one that I could think of. Yeah. The last real good ghost story. And I think, I think I would like David Vinger to make a ghost story. I put Barry Jenkins of Moonlight That's and If Beale Street Could Talk. I All of my answers are going to be complete opposites of the genres i think barry jenkins would make a good horror movie too okay next we have sci-fi who did you put mike mills oh god i love mike Mills because that's so not him like come on come on with joaquin phoenix yeah. all black and white i love 20th century yeah, women. 20th century women is great yeah. i would like to see miranda july do a sci-fi there we go mm. husband him. and wife there we go <laughs> bam comic book film oh jesus I love comic books. <laughs> I, I don't do. Want- I actually love comic books. You mean like a Marvel movie? Is that what we're talking about here? Or like I get, I get whatever your interpretation is of it. Okay, because there's some really great graphic novels that I would love. I would like to see Duncan Jones make Dead Enders, which is a really great gra- graphic novel. Okay, it's not superhero though. Okay, I don't think it needs to be superhero. Yeah. Okay, comedy. <laughs> Who did you put? David Lynch. <laughs> well, David Lynch doing a comedy. Wait, I'm sorry. Are all his movies comedy? Because <laughs> I laugh all the time at David Lynch. They're great. He's one of the geniuses. Oh, I use the word genius. No. <laughs> <laughs> he's a genius and he's made a lot of masterpieces. Oh, man. He's an auteur. <laughs> Final two. Biopic and then romance. I would like to see Kelly Reichardt make a biopic. And then romance, I would like to see, you know, I I don't know. You know what I would like to see that's not on your list, though? Mm -hmm. I would love Wes Anderson to do a TV series. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess he did. This wasn't a TV series at all. But You're talking about the Netflix Netflix thing? Yeah. But yeah, no, a TV series. That's a great idea. Actual TV series. Like, I want to see Wes Anderson do a TV series. And then I want to see how quickly everyone complains. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's funny. I like that. I bet it's in the cards. I'm going to ask you some final questions to wrap up today. What is the next movie you'll think you think you're going to watch after recording this? I'm not. I'm going to take a detour from movies because the only thing I'm obsessed with right now is Britt Marling's Murder at the End of the World. I don't know what this is. So it's on Hulu. Okay. I quite possibly think she is one of the best writer directors out there right now what's the genre uh murder love a murder at the end of the world shot in iceland so she did the oa oh yeah okay cool and she is in another one of my favorite films uh, another world and i just think that she when i think of like things that i would want to direct like if i was a could direct tv what would those shows be Mm -hmm. and what she does is I want that. I want her to be my best friend. I'm going to add this to my list. Yeah. It's 
it it's pure joy no it's uh <laughs> it's got it ticks all my boxes it's got like the it's cinematic the writing is great the directing is great the acting is superb and the cinematography is gorgeous okay so it's it's all there that's the package she's the package she's the real deal she i i really do think she's the real deal so that's our recommendation anything yeah brett brit marling yeah she's great Let's wrap this up with top three foreign films you think everyone needs to see. Oh my God, are you killing me? I think there's a French film called Ponette. I think that that's one of my top, you know. Um, I think anything that the Jean-Pierre or Luc Dardin, Dardin, the Dardin brothers do, uh, I think Rosetta is one of the best movies ever made. It's a beautiful film, and I think I think anything that they do is kind of right up there with the top for me. I rethought of this movie recently. I posted it on my Instagram. It's called Our Little Sister. It came out in 2015, and the director, I cannot pronounce his name, Hirokazu Kurita. Uh, it's so good, and I recommend you watch it. Okay. Our Little Sister. Our Little Sister. Now. It's in you, my brain. Do you have your third? Well, now you're like, okay. Now I'm going for it. No. Um, do you want me to show you up again? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, there's a great, uh, came out a couple years ago, Korean film called Burning. Okay. Um, not a lot of people saw that, which is very disappointing because it's a really beautiful film. That was a really great film, Burning. Amazing. Well, so to end this, if you want, we could plug your letterbox if you oh, want God. to. If everyone wants to be annoyed, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have anything to plug for the end of the show, whether it's your past projects, upcoming projects, how to get in contact? I mean, my name is my website. Anyone can contact me and tell me they want to give me money. I'll be totally thrilled. I actually don't have anything to plug. My film's in post. Oh, I actually have a short film. What am I talking about? I have a short film that it's currently just started festivals. It's actually uh, part one of a five-part series, and it's a rom-com. Look at you. Who would have thought? <laughs> I did a rom-com. It's called Things I've Made My Roommate Do, and it's based on these little true stories of all the things that I used to make my roommate do because he was like a hopeless romantic. So I would always be like, oh yeah, you should tell her you love her. You should totally do that. And then it, everything would always backfire. And so I wrote like a little five part series. That's it's, funny. It's like a little web series type thing. Cool. So, and yeah, so episode or uh, issue one or whatever you want to call it, part one is it's out and doing the festival circuit right now. So Exciting. coming to a town near you. <laughs> Well, thank you for being on the show. I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Sweet. Now it's time to get lost. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow our Instagram at It's Intermission Time and share with your friends. As always, Intermission is produced by Duzil Chu and Olivia Deaton, directed by Kaden Laroki, and of course, hosted by yours truly, Megan Braun. Be sure to say your prayers and visit the synagogue on all platforms. Oh,